0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central.
1: Good morning, everyone. It is Wednesday, August the 2nd, 2023. It is currently 1130 a.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Yeah, I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central, what was I going to say, podcast? I don't know. I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Thank you so much for tuning in, and hopefully this will be a beneficial broadcast. Now, the question is, did you hear the broadcast last night? If you did not, I think you missed something very important. There was a very important aspect of that discussion last night. And I'm hoping everyone understood the important part of it, the important aspect of it. I, I really hope you did. If not, well, I'm going to, to remind you. I'm going to, I'm going to re, I'm going to restate it. I'm going to emphasize it again in this episode because I don't want anyone to miss the main point. But last night, We started reviewing a sermon dealing with literal interpretation of the scripture, literal interpretation of the Bible. All right. And I thought there was some interesting points there. They gave some principles, but really what we started discussing before we reviewed the sermon was the point I really want to emphasize. So before I tell you about the sermon and what we're reviewing and everything and and giving you some of the points that were already given in the sermon, let me start with how I started last night, because I think it's very, very, very important. I started with a quote last night. From a book on dispensationalism. In fact, the book is called Dispensationalism. And I'm going to start with a very important quote that was there that I, I, I really want. You, and if you did not write it down, please write it down today. If you did write it down, just look over it over and over and over today because it's so very, very important. Are you ready? Here is the quote. When When good men disagree about doctrine it is usually due to a fundamental difference in premise. When good men disagree about doctrine, it is usually due to a fundamental difference in premise. Perfect logic, when built on divergent premises, will usually result in irreconcilable conclusions. Let me read that one more time. When you have good men disagreeing about doctrine, it is usually due to a fundamental difference in premise, the premise that they're operating from versus the premise the other person is operating from, different premises. If you have different premises, listen, even if you're using supposedly perfect logic, if it's built on divergent premises... Well, it's gonna usually result in irreconcilable conclusions. What is the premise you're operating from? What is the premise I'm operating from? And we're referencing, we're, we're relating this specifically to the issues of doctrine, theology, to Christianity. See, if you look at Christianity, you'll notice that people never d- agree on anything. There's arguing and fighting all the time. And many times you'll see Christians, especially on social media, online, and they're arguing and fighting. You're wrong. No, you're wrong. You're the heretic. No, you're the heretic. You don't know how to interpret the Bible. Maybe you should read your Bible. You know, what's wrong with these people? What's wrong with these people? And it's just, it goes on and on and fighting and fighting and fighting and arguing and arguing and arguing. Now you would think that men I'll I'll specifically focus on men. You would think that men who've been to seminary, who've been to Bible college, who have studied the issue of hermeneutics would immediately be able to diagnose what the problem is. You think they would say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We we shouldn't continue to argue because it's an exercise in futility, because the the problem here is not that you believe this doctrine and I believe this doctrine, or you have this interpretation and I have this interpretation, and we've got to keep fighting to try to prove who is right. You would think educated men who've been to Bible college, seminary, and have studied hermeneutics would go, well, no, no. The issue here is we're coming at this from fundamentally different premises, And because we have different premises, these divergent premises are leading us to irreconcilable conclusions. All of the fighting and arguing is because of fundamentally different premises. And that premise, that fundamental different premise is the hermeneutical system you utilize to come to your interpretation or your theological conclusions. If your premise is a certain hermeneutical system that leads you to this conclusion, and I have a completely fundamentally different premise that leads me to my conclusion, then we're, we're going to find ourselves at irreconcilable conclusions. We can fight and argue. You can quote your scripture. You can, qu- I can quote my scripture. You can go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. But someone needs to step in and go, guys, it's, You're wasting your time. It's just like you should just go out and just run yourself into a brick wall over and over and over. It's useless what you're doing. Why? Fundamentally different premises. Your hermeneutical system, that is the foundation to which you're going to build all of your interpretations. If I have a completely different hermeneutical premise than you— We're never going to come to a conclusion. There is no point in arguing. There's no point in fighting. If you want to argue and fight, then forget all of that stuff you're arguing and fighting about and say, okay. What is your hermeneutical premise? What is your hermeneutical system? Because that's what you're building everything off of. And if we can't come to an agreement about our hermeneutical premise, our herme- our our hermeneutical system, which is the premise for everything else, then there's no point in moving forward. And I don't know why Christians don't get this. Now, There's no excuse for men who've studied hermeneutics and they've got the education. There's no excuse for them to be acting like fools online, arguing and calling each other names. It's a waste of time. It's just, it's just childish. It's ungodly. And it's a, and I'm telling you, it's futility. It's vanity of vanity. All is vanity. It's meaningless, right? So just, just avoid that. But when it comes to people who may have never been to Bible college. They've never been to seminary. They've never even read a book on hermeneutics. They've never even listened. They've never even had uh, hermeneutics taught to them at church. Well, then this becomes even more frustrating and maddening because now they're arguing and they don't understand. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're fighting about this. And when you ask them, oh, it's so maddening when when you're having these debates with someone and you're like, okay, now, wait a minute. What is your hermeneutical premise? What is your hermeneutical system? And they will look at you like, what do you mean? I mean, I read the Bible and I understand it. And no, no, what is your hermeneutical system? And they may try to articulate one, but you'll say, but you're not even being consistent with your own hermeneutical system. You're making an argument about this this way, but then you're saying something completely different over here. You don't even know how to define your hermeneutical system. You don't even, you're not even being consistent with it. You're never going to come. I mean, there's no point in having this debate. Now, we know if we study hermeneutics, there's only, there's just a couple of basic systems of hermeneutics, right? Someone may call it the liberal, the the literal system. I should say not liberal, the literal biblical interpretation, hermeneutic. Sometimes we may refer to this as the historical, grammatical, literal, you know, grammatical, historical, literal, how you want to put the words in order. Okay. All right. Some, well, we can, we could expand on that, but just more of a literal, a literal approach. You have another one that's more allegorical or spiritualizing, right? Their approach. And these approaches then are, listen, this becomes the premise in how you interpret everything. Now, the issue is. You're, you're, those two systems are not going to see things, and then you can throw in other hermeneutical principles like a proper distinction between law and gospel. Right? That's a that's a major hermeneutical principle. If you don't maintain that pr- that distinction between law and gospel, or don't even recognize it, or even deal with it, you're going to come to completely different conclusions. So we've got to figure out what the premise is. That's what we have to do. So let me read this again. When good men disagree about doctrine, it is usually due to a fundamental difference in premise. Perfect logic, when built on divergent premises, will usually result in irreconcilable conclusions. I know I've just spent 10 minutes reminding you of that, restating it, repeating it. And I know some of you hate when I do that, but this is the issue. Now, I know we're reviewing audio about someone kind of teaching the basic principles of a literal Bible interpretation system, but you know, I always go beyond, I, I like to take the uh, an idea and then really go deeper. So I'm trying to go deeper going, hey, this, this really brings up this other issue. And that is what is the premise you're operating from? You've got to be able to define that. You've got to be able to articulate that. Because if you don't, All the other stuff is just its just words. It's, I hate to say it. All the other stuff is just womp, 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 you you we can't, we're, we're talking past each other because we're operating from two completely fundamentally different premises, which will lead to irreconcilable conclusions. Does that make sense? Now, last night, I told everyone that on the Sermons 2.0 app, The Sermons 2.0 app. You can download the Sermons 2.0 app on the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store. You can do Sermon Audio 2.0 or Sermons 2.0. You'll find the app, Sermon Audio 2.0. Once you download that app, look for Shining Light Independent Baptist Church. Shining Light Independent Baptist Church. Follow them, then all of their new content will show under your feed tab. But they have two series right now that I'm interested in. The first one is Bible Institute Block Training, Bible Institute Block Training, and the other one is Dispensation Through the Bible. Right. And I'm, I'm going to be listening to these, following them. Hopefully they, they can continue these series. They maintain the series because I can't wait to see where they're going to go. And I'm, because of what they're doing, we're going to sometime in the next month or so, maybe sooner, we're going to start our own series on dispensationalism and, and the dispensational approach to scripture. We'll, we'll look at it, the good, the bad, the ugly, and we'll see what we, how we want to approach that. I think it should be fun. I think it should be a little bit of church history. A little bit of biblical hermeneutics, uh, a little bit of scripture it should be a little bit of everything. We will work on that at some time. I'm, I've already bought a lot of material and start going through it and start trying to put it all together and how I want to work it. But definitely, again, they are uh, the name of this church is Shining Light Independent Baptist Church. They're located in Australia. Bible Institute Block Training, Dispensations Through the Bible. I would definitely follow those too. Now, in Bible Institute Block Training... They have a number of sessions on literal interpretation of the Bible. Literal interpretation of the Bible. We reviewed last night. We did about an hour and half, an hour and a half long uh, broadcast. I think we covered a lot, and now we just have a little bit here to finish. Just a little bit here to finish. The, he's given us basically three basic principles of a literal approach to scripture. And he says, number one, it's the agreement principle. The agreement principle is that what, however you interpret a scripture, it must be in agreement with the rest of scripture. All right. If you come to a conclusion, now I will argue, and I added to this, you also need to make sure that whenever you are, you know, when you come to an interpretation, are are you in agreement with the way you've interpreted the rest of the Bible or are, have you already changed your hermeneutical approach, and you're not being consistent. Are you in agreement with yourself, and are is your conclusion agreement with the rest of the Bible? Number two, the context principle. Hey, what you've got to realize the context. What is what is what is the historical context, the grammatical context, the textual context, the cultural context? You got to know the context. And then he called it the ethnic principle. The ethnic principle is you got to make sure you understand. Who this, the text is to. I call it the original recipients principle, right? Who was it originally written to? How does it apply to them first and foremost? And then is, are we sure there's anything for us? Or is it simply describing something? And if it is prescribing, are you sure it's, it's, it's for us? Is it? Maybe is it specifically for Israel? Is it for the Gentiles? Is it for the church? How do we understand that? Those were the three basic principles, the agreement principle, the context principle, and the ethnic principle. All right. We talked about all of those last night. Now, we only have a few minutes left of audio to review. We'll try to bring this to a dramatic conclusion. But I think you noticed something. What I really want you to remember wasn't a part of any of the audio we reviewed. I want you to remember that when good men disagree about doctrine, it is usually due to a fundamental difference in premise. Perfect logic, when built on divergent premises, will usually result in irreconcilable conclusions. What is your hermeneutical premise in which all of your interpretations flow? which you build all of your interpretations, if you cannot clearly identify that hermeneutical prince- premise, well, then me- there's a high probability you're not even being consistent with your hermeneutical system. And not only that, it really makes arguing with you a waste of time and you arguing with me a waste of time because we've got to be able to establish what that premise is. Because if we have two Completely divergent premises, (laughs) we're going to have irreconcilable conclusions. All right. Now, the premise he's putting forth is a literal Bible interpretation. His premise is you interpret the Bible literally. Others say, well, maybe, maybe not. Those are divergent premises. Let's see how he wraps this up. Now, we're going to jump back in. There's no easy way to ease into this. So we're just going to jump in. I've I've given you the three basic principles he's given us. The agreement uh, principle, the context principle, and the ethnic principle. All right. Now, you can go back and listen to part one and hear everything he had to say. Or you can just go listen to his message. Part uh, This is session one, literal interpretation. Again, it comes to you from, um, hang on, where is it? Shining Light Independent Baptist Church. You can find them on the Sermons 2.0 app or the Sermon Audio website. Shining Light Independent Baptist Church. This is underneath their their series called Bible Institute Block Training. And it's session one, literal Literal interpretation of the Bible. Let's jump back in and see if we can bring this to some kind of satisfying, dramatic conclusion. And we do that Now.
0: So just remember there is the grammatical, historical, the literal interpretation, okay? Grammatical, that's words, sentence structures and phrases. And there are many, many words. Like, for example, let me give you this. God's Word. Okay, the Word of God, Holy Scriptures, Law of the Lord, Oracles of God. This is what the Word of God is called. Phrases, Scriptures of Truth, Sword of the Spirit, the Word, Word of God, and so on. So that's just a word study. Here's, here's one here on uh, the Word of God. Let me f- share this one with you. I've shared this before, but I'll share this with you. As you can see, it's from my notes that sort are of well-worn. Uh, the Word of God, the symbols of God's Word. You can preach on the symbols of God's Word. The Word of God is uh, spoken of as being a sword. Okay, the sword of the Word of God. It's referred to as being a hammer. Symbolical, yet we know what a hammer does. Uh, Think about what a hammer does and what you can do. It's a a tool of a workman. Uh, It's a fire, the Bible says.
1: Okay, now that's a little confusing because he just said grammatical, historical, literal. That's, That's a hermeneutical system, the grammatical, historical, literal approach to Scripture. And now he's kind of going off going, well, the Bible is called these things. These are symbols. Okay, well, now you're kind of getting into... Maybe typology, symbolism. So I don't know. Grammatical. When we talk about grammatical, we don't, we don't. I, I don't know why why he would use that as an example of grammatical. Grammatical is we open our Bible and that the, there are words here, and these words have meaning. They have meaning, and you have to know the meaning of the words. What do the words actually mean, and how are they being used in the context in which you find them? Grammatical, right? How are the words strung together? What's the structure of those words? It may even come down to noun, verb, it may come down to those very specific things related to grammar, right? Grammatical. We this is not some super we don't look at it some mystical way about a feeling. No, words have meaning. They have definition. They have context. They're used a specific way. They're strung together a specific way. That's grammatical, historical. These grammatical words are used in a historical context. They're directed to a specific people at a specific time for a specific issue. You've got to know the time, the place, the who, the what, the where, the when. And then literal is that you make, you understand the words in their literal sense, unless they're clearly not being used in a literal way. They're being used, the words are being used in a figurative way, in a symbolic way, right? Then okay, we understand sometimes we have these different ways words can be used, but you're still trying to understand the word and then saying, oh, this word is being used in a figurative way or, or an illustrative way. That that makes more sense when you're talking about uh, if he's going to talk go through each one grammatical, historical, and literal. That that seems to yeah. I don't know why he would kind of say grammatical and then he takes off on the, the the symbols are the are the different figurative language the Bible uses to describe the Word of God. It it just I don't know I don't know exactly what was going on there. But right, let's continue.
0: Some of you young fellows that are training to be preachers, you need to take this outline. So the Word of God is a sword, it is a hammer, it is a fire. Then if you turn this page over, it is a seed. We find this, it's the seed of the Word of God. It's a mirror, James chapter 1. Look into it and as you read it, uh, God will uh, change you into the image of Christ his Son. Uh, It's a light and a lamp in Psalm 119.
1: Yeah, I've, I've seen, I've seen that the, the the way he's using this. I've been taught this in numerous Bible colleges and uh i don't know bible institutes all kinds of things where you learn all of these and you got to remember all of them the bible is a mirror the bible is a sword the bible is a hammer the bible is a fire the bible is seed and you got to remember and you got to remember the scriptures from where you get each one of those and typically it shows up on a test all right so i've been given that a million times there's nothing wrong with it i just wouldn't be trying to use that to somehow talk about the grammatical historical literal approach i would i would just be saying I, I, don't, I don't know where I would use that. I don't know if I'd be using it here. I, I would be using it almost as a separate lesson. Let's see how what the Bible says about itself and how the Bible is described in the scriptures. That's what we're going to do in the next hour, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever the case may be. And then I would go through each one, look up each scripture, talk about each one and then how it works, okay, how we understand it. I, this just seems weird uh, that it, that this is showing up at this point of the of the lecture. I, I don't really understand why it's here. This would be a, a it's it's usually used typically in all the ways I've ever been taught. It's almost a separate lecture by itself, right? Hey, we're gonna. You're getting ready to begin your Bible education. Well, pick up your Bible. Okay, this is the Word of God. Let's look at how the Bible describes itself. Let's look at the how the Bible what how the uh, the words of the Bible are used to describe it, and then you go through and you you lay all of that out. It's usually this usually shows up in kind of an introduction lesson to. Now you're going to pursue the study of scripture here. Here's what you need to know what the Bible says about itself. Usually it's an introductory material or an introductory lecture. And again, I just only because I've gone to so many different schools, that's kind of where I would put this. He he waited, I don't know, 35 minutes, 40 minutes to throw it in, but it's supposed to be a lecture on the literal literal interpretation, the the principles of literal interpretation. So I, I, I don't know that's... It's all good stuff. You should write everything down. You should back it up or you should just go look it up and listen to their sermon, you know, without me interrupting it and and analyzing it and critiquing it and, you know, trying to do something with this. You should go listen to that. And then when he gives all of those, write them all down. All right. Um, uh and go write them all down you should write them down what he's saying is absolutely good and it's biblical it's just i don't really know where it fits into the lecture now that's just me i don't want to be nitpicky someone else uh, in chat just says it's strange he's saying these here it just it does seem weird out of place it just seems like I, I, yeah, I don't, it just seems weird. I, I don't know what else to say, but every, every person structures their lectures their own way. In his mind, it may fit in perfectly here, but I'm just trying to understand. You're trying to teach me about literal Bible interpretation as that, that system, that method. You've given me really three principles, the agreement principle, the content principle, and the ethnic principle. Okay. And now it seems like he's got this time. Um, oh, well, that's true. Uh, and around it, by way, it seems weird because, well, this really isn't literal in a sense. So if what you're saying is literal, but in this particular case, the Bible's using figure of speech. So because the, the Bible's not literally a sword, it's not literally fire, it's not literally seed, so... <laughs> You think you at this point would stop, and, and, and the fact that he just used it in the grammar part of the grammar, historical, literal, like the whole thing just seems weird. This is where you stop and go, even the, this is what it means to take it literally, that we take it literally, but we don't ignore figures of speech. And here's an example of figures of speech used to describe the Bible, right? I, that's, that's, that's a very good point. It's just, it's not literal. That's a, that's a good point. I'm trying to figure out why it's being used here. That's a good point. It, the whole thing just seems weird to me. The whole thing, it seems like this would be, if he's going to use it here, hey, we've given you some principles of literal, but make sure we understand that there's times the Bible uses different kinds of language, poetic, figures of speech. And how do we understand that within a literal hermeneutic? That, that That's a, that's a, that's a good question. And All right. Let, maybe he's going to do that in a minute. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm trying to follow this. Here we go.
0: The Bible says it is a food, all right? It's milk and it's meat. Uh, it's bread for us to, to eat and to grow on. It's also the water of life. So there's just a few symbols. How the Bible is referred to, the Word of God is referred to as these symbols. But there are literal meanings to these as we see uh, in the Word of God, then of course, as we go down a little bit further into this, the grammatical historical—that's
1: a little confusing. It—they're symbols, but they have literal meanings. I need—I need you to a—I need you to flesh that out for me a little bit. All right, they're symbolic, but it has literal meanings. Okay, what, what do you mean it has a literal meaning? The Bible is fire. There's a literal meaning that it's fire. It's the Bible's a hammer. It has a literal. Me- what What do you mean by that? Like I, it's a sword. It It has a literal meaning. Isn't the whole thing symbolic? So I, like I, I, I'm having. I I don't know what. I, okay, someone just says I do not understand what that meant. I I don't I don't know if I under. I I'm a little perplexed here. I'm a little pers- And I'm just really confused because. He's using this to try to describe the, the, gra- the grammatical part of the grammatical, historical, literal hermeneutic. But I don't know how that grammatical, how that fits into the grammatical part. It doesn't fit into the grammatical part. Alright, All right, let, let's continue.
0: Uh, interpretation of Scripture is to interpret it not only grammatically correctly, uh, using the words, using common dictionaries, but also words like lost. Uh, the word lost uh, in its English translations, has uh, more than one meaning. Lost—that means destroyed, perished, and so on. And so, if you've got a good dictionary where you can look at this, maybe a Strong's, and use the numbers on a Strong's dictionary, look up the word "lost." Look at uh, the reference there. I think it's 622 on uh, on. Um, I think it's uh, yeah. I think it's 622 on the Strong's Concordance. Have a look at that, and you'll find all the different translations of that word within the new testament historical it's like putting scripture where scripture is due it's like if you open the first chapter of isaiah the first chapter of jeremiah the first chapter of hosea it tells you that these prophets prophesied in the days of certain kings okay and so you'll find that
1: okay the he didn't really explain the grammatical part he 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 wanted the grammatical part and then he went to this weird thing about the symbols used in the bible to describe the bible but they supposedly have a literal meaning now the historical he's he's going with okay i don't know what he, and then okay yeah okay so there's there's words and those words have meaning i think that's what he was trying to say that the grammatical part when we understand the grammatical part of the grammatical historical literal hermeneutic is that the bible is made up of words Words have meanings and we've got to understand those definitions. Okay. I, 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 I'm, I'm all with that. I'm with that. Uh, I just, I don't know. So now he's doing the historical. I agree. The Bible has a historical context and we've got to understand the Bible properly. We got to, those words. The, the, the grammar part, the grammatical part, those words and how they're strung together in the definitions of those words fit into a historical setting and a historical context. And they're pointing to and speaking first and foremost to that historical setting. I, 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 that's, I that, that, that's the way I would possibly approach this. But OK, let, let's see how he does. And remember, if you weren't listening last night. There's some bird in the background. I don't know. I know this is coming to us from Australia. I don't know if they just have birds hanging out in the church sanctuary. I don't there's some bird in the background. I I don't know if there's a bird right outside the window. I don't know what's going on. But but that just once again, that's why. This is why. Whenever there's a sound in the background here, I always try to explain what it is because because I, at least for me, when I'm listening to a sermon or something or a lecture and there's some weird sound in the background, my mind immediately starts trying to figure out what that sound was. So, like, I don't know. I've got a piece of paper right here. I've, I've done this a million times. So, so, usually I tell you when I'm holding a piece of paper. But, yeah, I keep – I got notes on this from, from last night. So, there you go. But I usually try to tell you what, what the sound is. But yeah. So if you hear something in the background, it's a bird. I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I need to know what's the deal with the bird. What is the, why is there a bird inside their church? Or do, are there, is, are they outside? Is there just a bird perched on the window, just yelling and screaming at them? I don't know what's going, what is happening in Australia? I don't know. All right. But let's continue
0: these prophets were contemporary with some of these kings that were contemporary. So if you think about Hosea, you can put him down there with Isaiah and Jeremiah, and guess what? You can put those over into the times of the kings. Why? Because they prophesied in the times of the kings. So if you read First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, you find out the prophets Jeremiah, Isaiah and Hosea were prophesying in the times of these kings. So that's what we call the historical interpretation, grammatical historical interpretation. And it's like I said, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, they are post-exilic uh, Bible uh, books, and yet you find as, uh, as you read them, their time takes place after the captivity over there in Babylon. They are the ones who have come back after being there 70 years uh, who wound up there because of the preaching of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Hosea? And so, putting Scripture in the right place, applying it uh, historically, will help you to understand it. So, if you just take that line, the kings and the prophets—Jeremiah, uh, uh, Isaiah, and Hosea—in the time of the Kings and Chronicles—they fit together. So, read them as a as a as a group. Right? Not only that, there is um, a whole heap of other stuff. Uh, The time of uh, Samuel, the time of the Kings, the time of the Chronicles. If you read the book of Judges, for example, that's a book that tells us when Joshua died, it became the time of the Judges. And if you look at the first chapter of the book of Ruth, it tells us in the book of Ruth, these people went down to Moab and it was in the time of the Judges. And so it's wonderful to tie these things together. Look at the phrases, look at the words, look at the timeline, and you find the grammatical, historical, literal interpretation will just bring so much truth to light for you, okay? So just remember also in the grammatical, historical interpretation of the Scripture, there is literal language. There is symbolic language, okay? Uh, there is metaphoric language, there is uh, parables, there are types, Look at Acts chapter 10, verse 11. Now, Peter was holidaying. and wasn't holidaying, but he's down at the house of Simon the Tanner in Jopper. He's up on the roof. And around midday, the Lord comes and speaks to uh, Peter in Acts chapter 10. And Peter was one of those guys who was always telling God, no. You know, Jesus said to him, you know, let's do this. and Paul said, no. How about we do this? No. And so here in Acts chapter 10, Peter was up there on the roof. And so... The Lord speaks to Peter and he tells him here in Acts chapter 10. Look down and I think it's verse 11, Acts 10, 11. So Peter says, "Saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Three times this happened. As it were, a great sheet that was knitted, let down with all manner of creatures on it. God was illustrating to Peter here to slay these creatures and eat them, and he said, Well, <laughs> nothing common or unclean's ever passed my lips. But what was he illustrating to Peter here? There's going to be three guys knocking your on your door. Go with them, doubting nothing. One would be a Roman soldier. There would be servants that belonged to the Roman centurion back there in Caesarea. And so Peter in his Jewish prejudice was, oh, Hang on, i can't go with them. Because God already told him, There's going to be three men knocking on your door. Go with them, doubting nothing. And so this is what happened. He was illustrating this by showing these creatures on this, as it were, sheet let down to rise, Peter, slay and eat. And he's saying, you know, what God has cleansed, don't call common. So it's an illustration of the Gentiles who need the gospel to whom he's going to up there in Caesarea in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. Then, of course, Zechariah chapter 13. One-
1: okay, now now here's where I think he's trying to bring in, that even though there's a literal interpretation, the Bible uses figurative language, symbolic language, parable poetry that type of thing that's when he should have possibly brought in then all of those figurative descriptions of the bible as being fire hammer Seed, all of the different things, milk, meat, all of the different things the Bible is described as. Like that, then that, that's the case. Now, what you have to try to demonstrate to people then is the complexity that that presents to the Bible student, right? Okay. We're going to go with a literal interpretation. In other words, we take the literal meaning unless there is something in the text that says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is obviously using figurative language, symbolic language. This is using a parable or in this case there is a vision now now in this case this is where you could say this vision about the take the animals kill eat and do these things clearly it there is a literal meaning to it in this sense in other words the literal meaning is that it's pointing to something literal if that makes sense in other words hey here's this vision But it's pointing to something very literal, the cleansing of the Gentiles, the bringing in of the Gentiles. That's very literal, right? you're going to preach, the Gentiles are going to be coming in. The Gentiles are going to be brought in. That's a very literal, 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 literal concept, right? But it's being demonstrated in a very figurative way. So if you're going to try to explain it that way, right? In other words, the Bible may be described in a very figurative way, but it's literal in the sense that it's saying that the Bible has an impact or the Bible has that it's speaking of something literally true about the scriptures, not that it's literally fire, but it's literally powerful. It, it's not literally a sword, but it's literally sharper than any two-edged sword. And it does pierce asunder. It, it, it literally has this kind of impact in somewhat of a literal way. That, I think there you can try to explain what you mean there. The figurative language is pointing to something that's literal, that is real. It's not just figurative for figurative sake. It's pointing to something. If that makes sense. So if you' if you're going to have this vision, it's pointing to something literal. I think that's what he's trying to to get across. I think that's what he's trying to get across, but he kind of he well, I, I, I mean you, you can draw your own conclusions on how he's approaching it, right? So I it's just, okay, yeah, there's a lot we could say here about structure, but that's okay. that's okay. The point is if we can learn something, that's all that matters.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. As you also read through the Scriptures, understand this. As you read through the Word of God, sometimes there can be a couple of thousand years between sentences in the one verse. Because there's a timeline. It might be grammatical, but it's also historical. Zechariah is a great book for this. As you read the book of Zechariah, if you go to chapter 13, Oh. Look, there's so much in chapter 12 and chapter 13, and you can read so much in there. Uh, It's pre-written history. And if you read it uh, and you look at it, see, some of the Jews didn't know what this all meant because it was pre-written history. It was to be fulfilled. And then, of course, we look at uh, the prophets even wrote these things. Sometimes they did not understand what God had told them to write, but they wrote it without even understanding it. It was a mystery things that they desired to look into because they didn't understand it and it would be revealed later on. In Zechariah chapter 13, look at verse 6 through 9 with me. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, Those which I was wounded with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is when the Lord Jesus comes back in the millennium. The Jewish people will realize Who this is? And they'll say, what are these wounds in thine hands? And he'll say, these are they that I received in the house of my friends. Now look at the next verse, verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord, uh, the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn mine hand unto the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts uh, therein shall be cut off and die, A third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and I will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. I will say it is my people and they shall say the Lord is my God. Now if you look at the uh, timeline here, there are some things here where you say, hang on a minute, isn't this supposed to go before that? Because they say, what are these wounds in nine hands? That's the crucifixion. And then, of course, uh, they'll uh, look at that and they'll say, Oh, that's the Messiah. Look here. And then it foretells the fact that he would be smitten in verse 7 and all the disciples would flee. And so, as you read through the scripture, you've got to apply it uh, historically and grammatically and put it in its right order. Because sometimes God puts here a little and there a little, and you have to take that bit there and put it there to bring it to the point where it's grammatically and historically and contextually uh, understandable in the literal sense. It's like over in uh, Zechariah chapter 12. It's a
1: Okay. Wow. This... <laughs> The, you can't, all right. here's what I would say. Don't ever read Zechariah 13, uh, 6 through 9 to just try to prove a quick point and then move on because you're left with a, a million things here. Here's what I would say. There are times, and I do agree, depending on how you understand the first verse 6, how you understand verse 7, I think verse 7, many believe it is I think even referenced in the New Testament about how he's going to be smitten and then they're going to flee. I think it's even referenced maybe in Matthew or Luke. I'd have to do some cross referencing on this uh, because remember, I reviewed these sermons without, you know, listening to them first. So it's not like I'm prepared to do that. And I don't want to get us off on a sidetrack. But let's just say we can say seven is predicting them coming to get Jesus. He's being smitten and the disciples fleeing. Let's say that that's what's what prophesied. Now, the first thing we would have to say is that it's, it's, that the only application to this, or did it have a context in the day of Zechariah? And if we put six as coming after that, he's putting six supposedly at the millennial that's when Christ comes back, sets up a thousand year reign in Jerusalem, a literal reign. If you're going to put six there, and then you're going to put seven literally. Before the crucifixion, then of course this would be so chronologically out of order, it would not even be funny. It would be, it would be all over the place. Now, there are times I do agree that scriptures are not necessarily in chronological order. We have that in the book of Jeremiah, and this can pose some serious problems. So here's what I would just say, because if this is principle, principles about literal biblical interpretation, I think you need to stop here and then offer some kind of principle. Whenever you see something that doesn't appear to be in chronological order, you always have to stop and ask yourself some questions. Number one, well, wait a minute. Is it not in chronological order because my interpretation of this is wrong and I'm applying this verse to a specific time in history when that's not what this verse is pointing to? Is it out of chronological order because of my interpretive presuppositions I'm placing upon the text? Is it literally out of order or am I making it out of order in the way I'm interpreting it? Your interpretation could be causing it not to be in order because it's, well, not in order because of your interpretation. So then you have to step back and go, wait, 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 wait. Let's remove my presuppositions and see if I can put this together and make it fit in some kind of order. And then if that doesn't work, then you may say, hmm, This is out of order, and then you can possibly bring back your interpretive presuppositions you're placing on the text. Whenever you see—this is just so true and when you're studying the Bible. When you're reading the Bible and you're like, well, wait a minute. This is—there's something odd in the text. You're like, why— This information seems weird or like, then maybe it's trying to point to something, right? If you're reading and you're like, man, literally, this just seems to be a... If I take this in a very literal way, this doesn't work. Then you may ask yourself, wait, is this using figurative language, symbolic language? Is it using parables? Is it using poetry? Then you can start asking those questions. If you're like, wait a minute, this seems to be out of order. You have to ask yourself, why is it out of order? You, You don't just immediately jump to a conclusion. What you do is when the text... Something doesn't quite work with the text. That's when you stop and go, okay, wait a minute, what's going on here? And then you start trying to work on it and try to figure it out, if that makes some sense. All right, let's continue.
0: It's a great um, a chapter of scripture as well. When you read through the book, of, uh, um, in the book of Zechariah, the Bible says down here in Zechariah chapter 12, look at this verse here. Jechariah chapter 12 verse 10 And I'll pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one uh, mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn Notice the word firstborn is used there but notice also the tense here and the person here in this verse it says, They will look upon me whom they have pierced. He's talking about Jehovah God. All right, he's talking about himself. And also, if you look at the context of that and the words in that, They will look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. See, this shows you that God Almighty is the Lord Jesus Christ in human flesh. They'll look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. That's the literal interpretation, grammatical historical interpretation of Scripture. And yet you find some of these verses here, uh, the sentences, some of them are 2,000 years apart. So don't let that throw you. Right, our time's rushing on, so let me just give you a few.
1: I have no idea what he's doing there. I have no. It's so Zechariah twelve ten. I'm trying to follow. See now, the only problem is if you're going to use a scripture to try to make some hermeneutical principle, like, hey, see this scripture. Here's the hermeneutical principle. See how this scripture demonstrates this principle. But first, you got to make sure you make sure you explain how this verse actually fits that principle. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. So, I I don't know what he's necessarily trying to get, get across. God is speaking. Or you can say Jesus is speaking. However, you want to work this right. One God, three distinct persons, co-equal, co-eternal. Right. So, is this? Is this Jesus speaking that they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him? In other words, when speaking from his perspective, they're going. They are going to look upon me whom they have pierced. Their perspective. They are going to now mourn for him. They're going to mourn for the one whom they pierced. I don't know if this is trying to say Jesus is God. I don't know if that's what I would reference here. As one uh, mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as the one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Does the the verse seems to demonstrate God's perspective or Jesus' perspective? Hey, they're going to look upon me whom they have pierced. And then now it switches to their perspective. They're going to mourn from him, the one whom they have pierced. I, I don't know. I don't know exactly what he's trying to do there. What principle? And he's saying that's the. And he says that's the grammatical, literal, historical interpretation. I don't know. I don't know how you demonstrated. I. I I don't really understand. I do understand that as the grammatical, we do look at those words and those pronouns. We may want to ask ourselves why the, is it first person, third person? Like those are the grammatical kind of things we're looking for. How are the pronouns being used? Is the first person, third person, why is it switching the tense that is being used? Like those are all, I, I do agree. Those are all important issues you look at, but you didn't really articulate exactly what you're trying to get across here
0: more things here to try and help you out in the literal interpretation of scripture. Number one, agreement principle. Number two, the context principle. Number three, the ethnic principle. It has to be in context. All right, they're the three principles. All right, it has to be uh, agreement. It has to be uh, no violation of context or violation of principles, ethnic principles. You'll get into some of the prophets and you'll see prophets, prophecies are given against Egypt and against Syria and against other nations. Well, these are different ethnic groups that we call Gentiles, but they're still spoken to specifically within uh, the Scripture. So you cannot say Egypt applies to this person or Syria applies to that nation when in actual fact God is speaking to those particular nations on which he's going to bring judgment. All right, the word lamb in the book of Revelation, look at it. Uh, Look up the word lamb in the book of Revelation. If you've got an English concordance, and one of those is a crudence concordance, have a look at that. That's a good word, lamb. Now, one of the best words to look up in your Bible is the word fulfilled. And as you look at the word fulfilled in the scriptures here...
1: Okay, uh, I do agree that when you're looking and there's words of judgment to Egypt or to Syria, that's who it's to. Don't necessarily say, well, that represents this or represents that. Okay, I, I definitely agree. That's going much more for the literal approach. But, but it's weird. Like all of a sudden now he's like, look up the word lamb. Well, well, okay, well, like, well, so what principle is this supposed to be? Look up the word fulfilled. Okay, like what? I don't understand how it fits with the overall principles you're trying to give me. That that's the only, but that's okay. I mean, again, I'm not trying to be super critical here. I'm just trying to to, to follow along. I'm still, uh, hey, I'm still super happy that this is available, and I want everyone to go listen to everything they have to say here because it is bringing up important issues here. I just don't, I just don't get what I don't really. I'm trying to follow this, right? But let's let's see. I'm going let's just follow it to an end, its end because we're almost done.
0: Uh, just a simple Bible study word on the word fulfilled, read it literally, uh, grammatically, historically, and it talks about, in the past it was written about the Lord Jesus Christ in pre-written history, and all this was done that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Remember what I said? The new is in the old contained, but the old is by the new explained. So when you look at the word fulfilled, You get a grasp of what was written there in the scriptures when the Lord Jesus told his disciples, he uh, preached unto them out of every scripture explaining about himself. And so this is just an introduction to literally understanding the the scriptures and interpreting the scriptures for yourself. The word lost is the Greek word apolumai. And it's a great word because it not only has the meaning of lost, It also means to destroy. It means to perish. And if you put it in context, it gives you a great big picture of what the word lost means. For example, the woman lost her coin. The man lost his sheep in Luke 15. And then the prodigal son was lost. Three instances of lost. Though they were lost, it's the same word destroyed. And even though, uh, if you want to translate it destroyed, it was still existent somewhere else. It is not completely being annihilated. So we say people will be destroyed in hell. They will perish in hell. They'll be cast away in hell, but they will still exist in hell. It's like the product.
1: Like that's an interesting principle because some people teach annihilationism, that people will not live for eternity in hell You know, suffering or the lake of fire, that they will just be annihilated. So, if the word "lost" or or is used can mean destroyed, but it also demonstrates that the the object is still existing. And those parables about these things being lost, if it's the same Greek word, then you can say when something is said that it's destroyed or lost, it doesn't mean that it ceases to exist. Okay, that's an interesting principle, and we could we could really work on that, and then you know take that and pursue it. But I don't really know how that's fitting into the overall, like, I don't understand how this fits into the structure of the lecture. Like, I'm looking at the lecture and I'm like, well, so where, where does this fit in? Now, is he trying to demonstrate the Bible has words and the words have meaning? So is this back to the grammatical part? Like, is, is the lecture structured like... We're going to – the principle of interpretation we're trying to give you is the grammatical, historical, literal – Here's what we mean by grammar. We're going to look at all of these examples of words and the meanings of words. Here's what we mean by historical. We're going to look at all of these things that have historical context, and we're going to show you how that works. And then the literal, we're going to show you how these passages and how we have to interpret them as literal. But at the same time, we're going to offer all of these examples where figurative language is used and these different types of language is used and how that fits into a literal interpretation is that the outline of the of the lecture or is the outline of the lecture the agreement principle the context principle or the ethnic principle or are there two parts to the lecture that one is grammatical historical literature, uh, literal and the other is agreement context and ethnic but i but then he throws in like just look up this word and i'm like well where does that fit in i don't i don't understand but that's that's my own See, that's my own, that's just my own personal preference, right? My own personal preference is I'm trying to follow the structure of the lecture. And so like if I was writing out notes, where would I be? Like what what would my main points be here? And these are just additional ideas thrown in. This is an entire discussion here basically about annihilationism. Well, I reject annihilationism as well. So this is good now. He's giving me something to consider that if, if, if it's this Greek word, and the Greek word clearly demonstrates time and time again that something can be lost or destroyed, yet it's not annihilated, then maybe it would fit. Maybe it wouldn't fit. I don't know. It's something I I definitely want to write down and go explore. So I'm grateful for hearing it. I just don't know how it fits into the. I don't know how it fits into the overall lecture or, or the structure of the lecture. But I'm just being picky because well I like things structured. But then I listen to myself and I'm like. I violate these principles all the time, and sometimes I do the same kinds of things, and I'm all over the place. So, you know, but all right, that's the only thing I'm trying to figure out.
0: The ...son returned. He came from somewhere where he was, but where he was, he was lost. When he came back, he was found. When uh, the coin that was lost was retrieved, it was found. When the sheep that was lost was retrieved, it was found, but it was still existent somewhere else. Alright, let me just give you this here. So, you look at the word interpret. You look at the word interpretation. Uh, it's used throughout the scripture. In the Old Testament, it was used for the interpreting of dreams. But, you know, we get to the book of Daniel, we see that Daniel was the man who interpreted the handwriting on the wall. Meeny, meeny, tikal, you fast him. And what did he tell Belshazzar? Well, this is what it says. It says, you weighed in the balances, you found wanting... Uh, Your kingdom's washed up and tonight you're going to die. That's the Hong version. But as you put the scripture in its literal context, it's meant to be understood literally in a simple way. Uh, It's only modern scholars that try to make it complex and try to make you think you're so brilliant and so smart because only the complicated uh, parts are the best ways to understand it when in actual fact the simple interpretation of scripture is the way God wants it to be understood. So, the Word of God... All right, we need it, we read it, and we heed it. All right, we need it, we read it, and we heed it. Well, we've covered a fair bit of ground on that, and I trust that we haven't rushed that too much for you, but I certainly hope it's given you a little bit of a a grasp on the tools that we use to help you to understand the Scripture in the literal interpretation. Do not try and allegorize the Scripture. Do not try and uh, interpret it in such a way that it really doesn't have a meaning. And trying to put meanings to things that don't exist is just a violation of Scripture. So let's close in prayer, and then uh, we'll uh, quit for today. Thank you, Lord, for this time. I
1: I don't know. I <laughs> That didn't really lead us to a dramatic conclusion, all right? that That's always the danger in doing the, the sermon reviews the way I do so. Now, the ultimate goal of that sermon review— was to get you to go now download the Sermons 2.0 app or at least look them up and at least listen to everything else they had to say. There's a lot there that we could have isolated and just kind of used like... Okay, well, let's look at that word lost and, and the Greek word there, it can mean destroyed. And how does that fit with annihilationism? And is this a good apologetic against annihilationism? I'm, I'm all for that, right? Okay, let's look at Zechariah 12 or 13. And what is this in chronological order? And how do we understand this? Like, there's a lot of things he brought up. That are great little concepts to work on and we can use it. That, that, that's what I always try to say whether whether I think something is structured in a good way or even if I disagree. I can always grab something from a sermon and do something with it on my own. you're you benefit from a sermon. your the benefit you receive from a sermon is really dependent upon you. You can either just listen or you can then listen and take right. And pursue and study, and then you'll be amazed how every sermon is beneficial if you're willing to do that. But some people just sit there and just like, well, I don't like it, so I'm done. Okay, well, you can do that, you know, or you could just write your own sermons, and you day you'll be perfect. I don't know, but I, I always try to find the positive in it. So there's plenty of things there I could I could grasp. The overall, like, so if I was to summarize the message, it is use the literal. The premise he wants to establish is that the premise we should be operating from is a literal interpretation of the Bible, and we should not be using an allegorical one. Okay, that we should follow these principles of agreement principle, the context principle, and the ethnic principle. Great. He mentions the grammatical, historical, and literal. He didn't really try to explain that. But what he did demonstrate, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. But it is unfortunate. It's for- fortunate that he explained it or that he demonstrated it. It's unfortunate that it's a reality. It's fortunate that he-, he demonstrated this. It's an unfortunate reality. The unfortunate reality is when you're dealing with 66 books written over such a, a, a large span of time to different cultures, different historical settings, and to different people. And utilizing every kind of literary style you can possibly find, right? Everything is here from poetry to historical narrative to apocalyptic to prophetic. I mean, you name it. I mean, you've got everything from um, sarcasm to humor to uh, figures of speech, symbolic. I mean, you've got everything here in 66 books. The unfortunate reality is. Whatever premise we utilize, right, whether you go with allegorical or literal, we do have to realize all of the complexities and all of the different layers that come with trying to figure out, okay, what do I do with this text? What do I do with the each text requires its own stop and go, okay, what is my fundamental premise? My fundamental premise is trying to figure out the literal meaning of this. What is this literally pointing to? Trying to understand it as literal as possible, but at the same time being willing to go, there's something up with this text. I don't think literal is going to work here. Okay, wait a minute. I think that this is using some kind of symbolism. Okay, but it's using symbolism. It's got to be pointing to something, right? Even a parable. The parables are pointing to something that is a, a literal truth to some way, shape, or form, right? It's just not throwing just out some generic idea it's there's some literal concept it wants you to understand so he demonstrated in a roundabout way all of the complexities here right all of the issues. whether he intended to do that or not he demonstrated that hey you can have the premise but that premise there's a lot of complexity to it as much as you want to keep it simple the point is there's no way to always keep it simple Because you're dealing with a book with lots of complexity and layers and difficulties. Now, we do need a fundamental premise to remain, to stand on. And the fundamental premise is, I'm going to do everything in my power to take the text literal until I'm forced not to. Right? I'm going to take it literal until I'm told not, until I can, like, this is just not going to work. If it says Israel, I'm going to take it as literal Israel. If it says land, I'm going to take it as literal land. If it's, if it, I'm going to take those things literal, unless there's something in the text that just absolutely screams at me going, don't do that. Because any other thing becomes more subjective and more problematic. But even the literal has its own struggles and its own difficulties. And we have to be willing to acknowledge that because the Bible itself will be like, wait a minute, what's going on here? Is that literal? Because if it's literal, it's not even in proper order. Like, okay, what do I do with the order? Like, there's all of these issues. Now, that's their part one. They have a part two. Um, You can go listen to their part two. Maybe their part two will be organized a little different and structured in a little bit way. There, there's a lot of those little concepts there that hopefully you wrote down and you can go pursue them on your own. You'll get extra benefit from it. Hopefully my commentary offered some benefit, uh, but I still want you to understand the importance of figuring out your hermeneutical system because that's the premise from which you're going to interpret. All your interpretations are fro- are flowing from that basic premise. And you have to understand divergent premises Irreconcilable conclusions. So when you start having a difference with someone, you get to stop and go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I know we're fighting about, like I'm holding up my right hand here. I know we're fighting about what's in this hand, but the real issue is over here in the left hand. What is your hermeneutical premise? What is my hermeneutical premise? And how are we approaching this text? We got to make sure, what are your hermeneutical principles? What are my hermeneutical principles? Because if we until we agree on the hermeneutical principles... We probably would do better just talking about anything other than the issue that we're disagreeing on. That is what I really want us to get to. I know that wasn't his point, but, you know, we always use this to just to kind of get us going in our own direction. All right. That, that wasn't the dramatic conclusion I was hoping for. I really wasn't. But you can write down these six words. Agreement principle, context principle, ethnic principle, grammatical, historical, literal. There you go. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. I had no idea that we were going to spend almost three hours on working on all of this, but that's okay. Um, That's a lot of stuff we talked about. Hopefully, you'll find something beneficial in all of that. If not, I will will blame someone else for this. I'll I'll find someone else to blame for the reason we did this, but okay. But I'm telling you, look them up because – and the only reason is even whether you agree or disagree with things – it's going to be beneficial to you. It's going to supplement where we're going to be going because we're going to be digging into um, – at least, because a lot of this, the literal interpretation is very foundational to what we refer to as dispensationalism because that's one of the major arguments of dispensationalism is that you use a literal interpretation of Scripture. That's one of the – that's the premise for dispensationalism. The more you hear of this, you'll be better prepared when we take off on our our direction whenever we get there. In the meantime, we got plenty to do today. And then tonight, we got a lot to, to do on Jeremiah 14, 15, 16, and 17. So um, there you go. I'll be back on the air sometime soon. Thanks for listening. Email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. That's newsif at yahoo.com. Everyone have a great day. God bless.